0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Other Side of the Street by John Updike, which was published in The New Yorker in October of 1991.
1: He inhaled Hayesville happiness. He saw his entire life, past, and to come as an errant encircling of this forgotten center.
0: The story was chosen by David Rabe, the playwright and fiction writer, whose novels include Recital of the Dog, Dinosaurs on the Roof, and Girl by the Road at Night. Hi, David. Hi. So I know some other ideas came up, but Updike was pretty much the first writer you thought of reading for the podcast. Why was that?
1: Uh, he's been, you know, he's sort of a, been in my mind for since I first started writing or thought about writing He was always meaningful to me. And then uh, there was a period of time where I stopped reading him. I just willfully stopped because I felt like it was the only way to write, (laughs) the way he was doing it. And uh, so I just stopped. And I, I can remember talking to friends, and I would kind of even develop some harsh opinions of him that were really inauthentic on some level. Right. Based on just the need to kind of separate.
0: What for you is at the heart of his appeal
1: uh yeah i mean it's funny way we we have you know there's kind of a cross of backgrounds in a way i think i just i remember like he wasn't that much older than me when i was in college he was being published regularly in the new yorker and everybody uh where i was living at the time in college you know who was interested in writing was very attuned to the new yorker and he was published very young i'm not sure what
0: he started in the New Yorker in his early twenties, I think. Yeah, yeah.
1: So you felt, well, it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> he's done it. So that's sort of—it's been part of my brain for a long time. I think his—he's inhabited a part of it for a long time.
0: And at that point in college, were you thinking of writing fiction and not plays?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I started it all. The whole creative thing started wanting to be an actor. I thought then. The college I went to didn't have a theater department, but we had had a uh, professor, or teacher, a priest teacher, who was really very good, and he was a published poet, which was significant to us. But he had a class that I was in for like three years, and it was all prose or poetry.
0: Mm-hmm. And the the first story you thought of reading was uh, Updike's The Sandstone Farmhouse, which was too long to read on on the podcast. What made you pick the other side of the street
1: i think it's similar in a way in terms of the territory and the, uh, it's a, it's a smaller version of a similar work i think but that whole way he can uh, mash the present with the past and keep it very alive and not seem forced uh, it's just something that i i admire a great
0: mm-hmm. deal mm-hmm. and do you think the other side of the street is is very characteristic of updike or is it more
1: off the beaten path for him uh, I think it's characteristic in a way, but it's kind of off the beaten path in its smallness. And its, uh, but he does that very well, so that's the, that was why I picked it, really.
0: Right. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's David Rabe reading The Other Side of the Street by John Updike.
1: The Other Side of the Street. For that, his lawyer told Fawcett, you need a notary public. In this state, They're the ones who handle car title changes. Fawcett hadn't lived in his home state for 40 years, and only his mother's death had brought him back. He was taking possession of his meager inheritance, cleaning out her sad, crammed apartment. He lived far to the west, and the climate and vegetation, and even the quality of light here in Pennsylvania, seemed strange. The afternoon light was dying in the windows. The leafless trees in the courtyard below were sinking into a well of darkness with a silvery November glitter, as if after an ice storm gleaming on their upper twigs. He looked in the phone book under Notary Publics, and one listed at 262 Chestnut Street, Hayesville leaped to his eye, a woman, Georgine R. Mueller. She answered the phone and sounded excessively cheerful and helpful. But perhaps that was just the regional manner which he had slowly lost. He suggested that late as it was, their transaction must wait until tomorrow. But she told him, going that extra mile with him the way people in Pennsylvania did, No, I'm open here until 8. A lot of people, you know, can't get to you except in the evenings. You'll need the car title. The insurance card, your own driver's license, and what we call the short certificate. It'll say, short certificate, letters testamentary, across the top. Yes, I have those. My lawyer gave me plenty. Now let me tell you how to find my house. You come out the afraid of pike. I know, Foster told her. I used to live across the street at 261. Did you, though? What did you say your name was? He told her, but it rang no bell. It was a long time ago, he apologized. Just after the war, I was a child. We moved away when I was 12. Is that a fact? Well, it's still a house to be proud of. The Brubakers sold it, you know. This name meant nothing to him. A younger couple has bought it and sold off the back half of the lot. Really, it wasn't that big a lot in the first place. The vegetable garden had been down there and his mother's row of peonies and the asbestos-shingled chicken house which his grandfather had had built and the little fenced-in yard where his grandmother used to behead chickens with a hatchet on the stained old stump. Within the chicken house there was a liquid clucking and a musty stench of chicken dung and there were fascinating glass eggs scattered about in the straw to give the stupid hens the idea of laying. Well, I know, Georgine Mueller sighed. But that's how they do things these days. They crowd the houses in. This is considered a desirable neighborhood. It always was, Fawcett told her. That's why my grandfather bought the place back in the 20s. I'll be there around 7. I got to get a bite to eat. I've been lugging junk all day. There was no need to tell her about all this, but perhaps he was gaining back the garrulous local manner. Fawcett knew the way, but was slightly confused by the traffic lights, which had multiplied in Hayesville since he was last there. A mall spread itself where there had been fields. A new high school, flat and low, reminded him of an airport. Along the low side of Chestnut Street, the trees had been cut down and the curb pushed back. Without the trees, his old street had a barrenness that made the houses Some frame, some brick, appear exposed and shabby. The cement retaining wall had developed bulges and cracks since he was a child, or else a child never noticed such things. And the long flights of steps with iron pipe railings up to the porches of the semi-detached houses on the high side of the street had a gaunt, cockeyed look that was not part of his memories. To a child's eyes, these steps had looked grand, You climbed them and found magical pleasure at the top. A squeaking porch glider from which to watch the traffic go by below. A plushy front parlor with its shade drawn and a tinted big goblet of hard candy on the polished end table. A backyard with a double garden swing and a kind of bower of hollyhocks and morning glories. And a cement walk going back straight as an arrow toward the alley where the ice plant was. Beyond the alley had been a large, vacant lot where, in summer, traveling amusement parks set up their tents and rides. Fawcett had lived on the low side of the street, with his family yard sloping down to the truck garden and the chicken house, and the elevated houses across the street had seemed to be more alive than his, more packed with blessings. At 260, Next door to the similar house with a lighted public notary sign in the window of a glass-in front porch had lived Wilma Anna Emelfoss, a girl his age who always went to school in fussy dresses of the sort that the other girls wore only to Sunday school at Christmas time. Wilma Anna's front parlor acquired a big, long-needled evergreen. He remembered the stiflingly rich scent of pine sap and the musty attic aura of antique tree ornaments, and the department store perfume that the crisply wrapped presents gave off. The furniture in Wilma Anna's house all matched and wore doilies, and shelves of polished knickknacks were hung on the walls. The lampshades had tassels. When the Christmas tree was crowded in, the parlor seemed a cave of treasure you had to wriggle into holding your breath. At that time, an old woman had lived next door. Fawcett had forgotten her name. She wore cotton house dresses that buttoned down the front, a figure of fun and dread living alone. At Halloween, she turned off all her lights and wouldn't come to the door when children rang the bell in their costumes. Now the stone retaining wallet 262 leaned toward the sidewalk slightly and had lost some pointing. The iron pipe railing rattled loosely under Fawcett's hand. He rang a bell where a small, rectangular light glowed. With his hand on the storm door latch, he could feel the house tremble as its owner approached from the back, walking through the rooms. Hayesville women beyond a certain age were of two types only, overweight or wiry. Georgie Mueller was one of the wiry ones, with a quick, darting head of tight, solid black curls and eyeglasses, frames of several colors and substances. Her mouth seemed to be a mechanism that functioned whether or not she was paying attention to it. I didn't hear the ring for a second. I was just finishing putting in the dishes and watching the first part of the news. It almost makes you feel sorry now for Mr. Gorbachev. He must wonder what's going to happen next, and Mr. Bush can now do no wrong, it seems." That could change, Fawcett said, taken aback by the wide perspectives, she instantly opened up. Yes, the way the world is now, especially with these Arabs, she said, nevertheless moving past him toward her seat of business. Her desk and typewriter were set up in the sun porch under several framed and powering certificates. I'm the man who called an hour ago about the car title she finished for him. I recognize your voice. An out-of-state voice, he supposed, he had now. He handed her the papers he had assembled. You had no trouble finding me, I suppose? No, but there's more traffic lights than I remember. And it's still a tangle down at the corner at 5 o'clock. And even on Saturdays and Sundays now. It's the new mall toward Quarrytown has done it. Is the quarry still there? We used to swim in it, and I skate winters when it was cold enough. A lot of winters, though, it never did quite freeze. His own mouth seemed to be running a lot at random. It excited him to be on this, the other side of the street, looking through this woman's window at his old house, with its steep pitch roof and plump porch pillars. To him as a child, the front of the house had been a face, the two bedroom windows a pair of eyes close together, and the porch roof a sort of mustache, and the door and windows gleaming teeth. The striped awning in summer became another sort of teeth. This was the view of his house the crabby old lady had had. She often must have seen him go in and out the front door. Old women living alone look out their windows. Fawcett's mother, it now occurred to him, must have often looked out of hers into that courtyard. The hole in the ground is still there, but I believe they fenced it off. Too dangerous. A boy drowned 20 or so years ago. And in Fawcett's childhood, too, it was said that a boy had drowned 20 or so years ago. Everything's here, the woman said, except I need your registration card. This is the certificate the state gives you, but there's also a little card. Maybe it's in my mother's car. She didn't drive too much toward the end. Georgie Mueller did not offer sympathy. Death to her was a matter of paperwork. Yet her advice was kind. You look in your mother's glove compartment, she said, and I'll bet you'll find the little card I'm talking about. I don't know, he said. She was pretty scatterbrained the last year or so. That's how they get. My mother did too. They go back. Fawcett remembered the local expression, going back for regressing, for turning senile. It excited him to be outdoors in the cool, misty night again on the deeply familiar street On these very sidewalk squares, Wilma Anna and he had laid out hopscotch courts with colored chalks and played with a rubber heel that, if thrown wrong, would bounce and bobble into the gutter where the water from the ice plant ran. He found the registration card immediately in the blue Velcro-fastened folder the automobile manufacturer provided. The dead tried to take care of us. His mother had been depressed toward the end, but not senile. Precise instructions regarding her funeral had been folded in her upper left-hand desk drawer with her bank books and tax forms. His heart swelled in his chest at the unaccustomed effort of climbing the cement stairs again. He wondered if people who lived on this side of the street lived longer from the exercise. The land was flat where he lived now, with snow-tipped mountains unreal in the distance. As the notary typed away at her long, pale, green forms, he sat beside her desk, looking across the street, and told her, We used to have a hedge, all around, in a kind of pattern with raised pieces at intervals. We had this funny, heavy, long trimmer you crank to make the teeth go back and forth. It took two people to operate it, my mother and grandfather usually, and bushes, we had a lot of bushes to trim, "'The front yard looks pretty bald now. "'When they widened the street, "'they pushed back the sidewalks on that side. "'Yes, and no horse chestnuts. "'We used to collect them. "'Children do,' she said. "'Fawcett held his tongue, "'helpless to convey to her the peculiar wealth "'of a wagon full of horse chestnuts in their glossiness, "'their faint, punky smell, "'their oval spots of pallor like the belly on a teddy bear.' The place was a lot of work to keep up, he felt compelled to volunteer. But that wasn't why we moved. My father lost his job in 45 because a returning veteran took it back. And we had to move down to Wilmington, where there was work. My mother moved back to the area when my father died, to this apartment in town she always hated, though she never complained. I suppose she would have liked to live with me, but I had a wife. Fawcett had had three wives, all told. He hated to say no to women, that silent, powerful appeal they gave off like the pine sap scent of Wilba Anna's Christmas tree. There's a lot of heartbreak, Georgianne Miller admitted, frowning into the desk light as she rubbed the green form with a typewriter eraser. It's a handsome house, even without the shutters and the awnings. They came down about ten years ago. My husband and I were here already. I used to wish I lived on this side of the street, Fawcett confessed. It seemed, I don't know, more fun over here, even though the houses were smaller. This sun porch is a godsend, she said. Without it, I'd have no place to set up shop. In the dead of winter, you'd be surprised how the sun warms it up. I have an electric heater, but hardly ever have to turn it on. With a smart twirl of the platen, she freed the paper from the typewriter. She sorted out the duplicates, with a grimace of effort pressed her notary seal into the original and the carbon copies, gave him back the cards and papers she didn't need. Yes, he remembered, this was how people did things here, seriously, thoroughly, carefully. Life had weight here. The total, her fee, and the Commonwealth's came to twenty-nine dollars. She clipped his checks to her papers and showed him the envelope in which she would send his application for title transfer to Harrisburg first thing in the morning. "'Would you like to see the house?' she said at the conclusion of her instructions. Fawcett had been gazing so steadily at his old house that it took him a second to realize that she meant her own. "'Sure,' he said. She saw him as an orphan in need of a treat.' which he supposed he was. The swish of traffic was slackening on Chestnut Street, and there were no lights on at the front of his old house, just an unsteady upstairs phosphorescence indicating the presence of a television set or an aquarium with a flickering bulb. In that house, there had been a curious area downstairs under the windows that looked out onto the side porch where between the baseboard and the edge of the carpet an exposed stretch of floor had made a kind of bowling alley. He would line up rubber toys and towers of blocks there and bowl at them with a ball he owned, not a regulation softball, but a much besmirched white rubber imitation with purely sculptural seams and stitches. He had spent hours by himself at this strange sport, in this marginal area where grown-ups rarely set foot, and supposed that if his childhood had left a ghost, its haunt would be here. Here and in Wilma Anna's two-seat white wooden swing dappled by sun coming through morning glories, she in her starchy little fussy dress swinging forward as he swung back. Georgine Mueller's living room, as wide as her house, minus the width of a set of unused stairs, contained the usual goblet of candy on an end table next to a sullen brown plush sofa. Noticing the direction of his eyes, she said, Have a piece. That's what it's there for. He removed the fragile glass lid with its round, tinted knob. The candy was not hard in twists of cellophane, but leftover Halloween candy. Three-toned corn kernels, grinning pumpkins, and conical witches' hats. Chewy, but not too gummy for his bridge work. For $29, he figured he could sneak a handful while his hostess moved into the next room. When Jake left, she was saying, as if Fawcett knew the story, I was so mad I took the little savings account we had and blew it on the dining room. The people before us had had it such a dark, dull room, and Jake always said it was good enough. We ate in the kitchen anyway. The room was not dull now. Spanishness was the theme, from a wrought iron chandelier with violet candles to wall mirrors with wide Baroque frames of encrusted fake silver. Artificial beams had been placed along the ceiling, descending to jutting oaken brackets, as if in a California mission, above panels of three dimensional imitation stonework. Behind the mirrors, a silvery wallpaper was patterned in blown up Victorian steel engravings, like a Max Ernst collage, repeated over and over. A cave of treasure. That was how the houses on this side of the street had always seemed to him. Lovely, Fawcett said through the chewy Halloween candy. Really striking. She pondered his verdict on the walls of the room where a few prints of staring deer, shadow-boxed in velvet, completed the effect. It was a fancy of mine. That's one thing about being alone. You can do what you want. Yes, Fawcett had already noticed how, with the distant pressure of his mother's existence lifted, His personality had begun to expand on that side, distorting into a shape that half frightened him. His new talkativeness, for instance, a reaching out where he had always taken pride in being self-reliant, going west like a tight-lipped pioneer. How long have you lived here altogether, he asked Georgine Mueller. Her hair was curly, and her movements brisk, even twitchy, with reserves of energy. Women who looked old to him where he still had difficulty realizing his age or even younger. Thirteen years, it'll be. For the last seven, I've supported myself. It's hard, but you make do. Your mother made do, too, I don't doubt. My upstairs here, I have to rent. I couldn't get by without it. The neighborhood's seeing some changes, the lots being subdivided like they are, and the houses going into apartments. This is my bedroom. Do you mind passing through? I thought you'd like to see the backyard. I would, yes. I used to play in the backyard next door. She keeps it up real nice. Flowers back to the alley like her parents always had. And she just had that garden swing painted again. She cares for it like it's a real antique. Who does? Why, Wilma Anna. You mean she's still there? Oh, sure. All alone. She never married. Though lately she has a boyfriend comes calling. I never noticed one before. She goes to movies now and shows in town. I don't think she's there now even, or you could go say hello. Wilma Anna Elmafoss? I can't believe she's still there. That was more than 40 years ago. Her mother went quick, but her dad, oh, he lingered something dreadful. You wouldn't believe what a pretty little girl she was, always in these dresses that seemed a little too fancy to everybody else. She still dresses nice. For her work, you know, she sells real estate. There, you can see her swing through the kitchen window. Leaning over an aluminum sink, Fawcett could see a patch of white in the darkness and a blurred white framework around it. The arbor that had sheltered them as children, swinging back and forth, back and forth. A sulky, quizzical look on Wilma Anna's careful face, with its wide forehead and pointed chin, spotted by shadows and sun quicker than the eye could sort out. I see it, he said politely. Here's my pride and joy, the hostess said. My little piece of heaven. She led him out the back door, and they stared up the rise of her narrow backyard, with a center walk of cement arrowing back to the alley. Fawcett's heart seemed to swell again, pumping too hard. These secret yards, straight and narrow, had been the essence of the happiness on this side of the street. Lush flower beds along the walk, a patch of lawn with some lawn furniture, a shed containing hoses and rakes, an apple tree or two to represent an orchard, low fences of picket or playground wire, each quarter-acre in strict parallel with its neighbors, and the far end holding a garage and opening on to the freedom of the alley. He inhaled Hayesville happiness. He saw his entire life, past, and to come as an errant encircling of this forgotten center. His childhood backyard, with the bloody stump, the frightened, sad, stupid chickens, the vegetable rows that always needed weeding had seemed comparatively disorderly. His family had not quite had the Hayesville secret. It was right that they had been forced to move. He inhaled the moist darkness again and listened dimly to Georgine Mueller's detailing of the flowers she cultivated, the quince tree whose fruit she made jelly of, the storage shed and stone bench she had ordered from a supply house, her life stubbornly exerting its pressure back against that of the world. Returning to her gaudy kitchen with plaid formica on all the counters, Fawcett looked once more at Wilma Anna's white embowering swing and tried to imagine her life here, all those more than forty years. It was unimaginable, like the life of a tree. For his mother's solitude, Fawcett felt largely responsible, And amid the undercurrents of this encounter, he was acquiring responsibility for this woman's solitude as well. At least a touch of guilt at the tug of her tight-dyed curls, her undischarged energy. But in regard to Wilma and his life, he felt nothing but wonder. On the way out, he was going to avoid the tempting candy, but Georgine Mueller said, Take some. It'll just go stale otherwise. The children don't come around like they used to. A lot of the parents don't let them out, what with the maniacs you read about who put poison in the treats. She had suddenly become impatient tired. They moved in silence together through the darkened sun porch. The slight fever of their intimacy, which had peaked in the backyard, had subsided. Fawcett felt dismissed. Stepping into the glittery November chill, he was dazzled to see the house on the other side of the street ablaze. The porch light and front room lamps were lit up as if to welcome someone.
0: That was David Rabe, reading The Other Side of the Street by John Updike. The story appeared in The New Yorker in October of 1991 and was included in the collection The Afterlife and Other Stories, which was published by Knopf in 1994. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. So, David, as you said before, this story involves a kind of mashup of time. It's, it, there's a present time where Fawcett is an older man and a past time when he lived uh, on Chestnut Street. What is the appeal as, for a fiction writer of framing a story in this way where, where someone is revisiting the past?
1: Well, in his case, in my case, the past and interplay with past and present is, is very meaningful and kind of a, a rich area. What I feel about this story, what it uh, what it does, is uh, the prose is so kind of nuanced and flexible that he's uh, he's he kind of creates a story where there might not apparently be one. I mean, that could be that event of the story of going to this notary who lived across the street from where he grew up isn't you know there's no big incident, no anything really. I, I was thinking it's he's kind of like he has the ability like to. Is uh, it—what is it in forensics where they put a—is it luminol they put down and then the blood shows up? (laughs) That his prose is like that. It kind of brings—can bring things out. Throws it down
0: and sees what what lights up. Yeah, Yeah.
1: yeah, and that he kind of brings out stuff that might not be seen.
0: As you say, very little happens in the sort of present time of the story. A guy wants to transfer a car title and he goes to a notary public who lives on his old street. And that's really it. There isn't much of a narrative. Where— Where, for you, is the narrative of the story?
1: Um, In this strange interplay that develops between him and this woman, and and it's kind of never admitted, none of it is between them. But I think Fawcett and Georgine could part company and neither know that it had had happened. There had been this sort of uh, exchange of energy. Because she also visits her past, which is, you know, doesn't go back as far in that neighborhood as his, right. but she's kind of aware of certain things that have changed that he's aware of uh and that he points out and she's uh kind of protective of certain things that have developed since and you know her her uh I think she refers to her husband as left. Yeah. And I think he's dead, but I don't know. It says it's Jake left, but there's something I don't think it's ever clarified. Right. But the feeling of it is that since his death, although maybe not, you know, I don't know. Maybe he just had enough. Yeah, maybe had enough (laughs) of
0: the stale candy. uh,
1: Yeah. In this particular story, I mean, I, I remember a lot of things that kind of resonate from when I was growing up and visiting the elder women of my family. Mm-hmm. not unlike her. But, uh, I mean, I was, when I was reading it, I was thinking in certain ways he, he just makes it with this one. He just kind of pulls it off. Mm-hmm. He develops a storyline that is a storyline, doesn't have the fireworks of a lot of his stuff.
0: Yeah. That's much more meditative. But for me, the, the perhaps the most amazing part of it is this just flow of, of detail visual detail, um, which is packed in with so much specificity that he makes you see each room in that house yeah. or, you know, which is maybe not so easy to do.
1: No, I, I think it's kind of astonishing, really, when I reread it. Certain parts of it are like, <laughs> how does he remember all that? You know, the, yeah. the specificity about the candy jar and the top, where it's placed, and there's lots of it like that throughout
0: and even just feeling the house shake a little as yeah, she's walking right, toward the right, door. You right.
1: know? <laughs> stuff we've all, I think, felt yeah. or noticed. But somehow he, he makes it all very vivid, as you said. And it is a flow of sensory stuff that is sort of animated mm-hmm. by his spirit and hers, too, I think. Right. Uh, each in a different way. And the thing about the quarry, <laughs> right. somebody drowned At 20 years ago. every time someone yeah. has drowned 20 yeah. years ago, yeah. It's, yeah. Like, yeah. it's so true. I think small-town mythical stuff. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, There's also this layering where everything that we see, we see through the eyes of Fawcett as a man and Fawcett as a child, right. and it looks different, and it's a little shabbier now. It's all sort of crumbling or cracking, is that simply that we're because we're looking through the eyes of an, an adult now, or is it because it actually has fallen apart?
1: Probably both. You know, <laughs> as he but he even questions that himself. You know, yeah. he says, is it that I didn't notice these walls were yeah. crooked before or something like that? Yeah. Uh, but the whole thing about the magical appeal that the other side of the street had. Yeah. You know, it's it's such a uh, expression of the subjectivity. There was objectively nothing better about the other side of the street,
0: right. you know. Uh,
1: but somehow he, he felt that way. And what it had to do with that little girl uh, and the swing, that's a big part of it, too. She was over there.
0: Yeah. So what, what is what is the role of, of Wilma Anna Emil Floss in this story? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> is she sort of a cautionary tale of what happens if you never leave? Or is she sort of admirable in that she was able to find a— a satisfying life where others couldn't imagine it.
1: But we really don't know whether she's lived her life there. He feels she's a wonder that she was there and lived what her is, life there. But what
0: is he wondering
1: at? Well, I mean, wonder in the sense is like a miracle is the way I take it. Mm-hmm. When he says it was like the life of a tree, it. I didn't want it to feel like he was saying it was like the life of a blockhead or something, but the <laughs> immense co- complexity of a yeah. tree that is so mysterious. Yeah. But again, I don't think the story makes it clear. We don't know a thing about how she actually lived her life,
0: yeah, in a sense she 's a sort of an embodiment of the other side of the street she 's sort of the path not taken, yeah. and, you know what what he didn 't do
1: and yet she has uh that glow of child you know of a wonder in his mind of when when he was young that but,
0: mystique of of this the swing they swung on still right, being there, right. and so on
1: those funny things that you remember um the swing porches and things like that—that that mm-hmm. I don't know if they exist anymore. <laughs> Maybe in small—they're probably in, not in Wilma Anna's backyard. Maybe. They do, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right.
0: So everybody in the story is alone. Um, Fawcett seems to be alone after his three wives right. whom he's had, but doesn't seem to have anymore. Yeah, that doesn't clear and
1: either, is it? He has one at the moment.
0: And his mother was alone in this cramped apartment. And Georgine Muller is alone, right and uh, Wilma Anna was alone, and somehow Fawcett feels responsible for everybody's uh, loneliness except for Wilma Anna's. Why, why do you think that is?
1: I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. like he doesn't recognize that it was that.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, what if he'd met her again? Maybe he would have... T- you know, In other words, if she was around in, in reality, a, yeah. a, an actual human that, rather than a memory, yeah. that... Um, Maybe he would have taken it on then but or felt something. But he, I know I'm very aware of him taking on, you know, feeling yeah. this responsibility for everybody else or for the woman he's just done the yeah, business he, with. Yeah, he but.
0: feels it for the notary yeah. simply by, 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 you know, virtue of having spoken with her. Right. She offers to show him her house presumably because she's proud of it and she's proud of what she's done in this gaudy dining room. Right. And— What's interesting is his response to it. You know, he's he's tries to be supportive to yes, her, even yes. though he's sort of recoiling from yeah, it Yeah, the description <laughs> sounds pretty awful, sort
1: of. Yeah. But at the same time, he's—I don't know if I—again, I, I can't tell, thinking back, whether I was sure what he felt mm-hmm. or whether he just so polite or actually enamored at being on the other side of the street that he yeah. kind of liked it. Um
0: yeah. There's another line in the story that that makes me stop, which is when he's watching the notary stamp the papers uh, very seriously and carefully. And he says, life has weight here. And I wonder where it doesn't have weight for him. You know, the rest of his life is suddenly sort of weightless or frivolous.
1: A line like that makes it feel that he does feel that by going away and leaving, he lost something.
0: yeah. Hey, he has that line also when he sees the garden behind the, the notary's house and he says he, he saw his entire life past and to come as an errant encircling of this forgotten right. center. So right. suddenly this this place that he really didn't think much about has become the center of life for him. And that, maybe that will last after he leaves. Maybe it won't. Right. Sense, I think that's
1: right? the thing. Is, it, is he going to move back? <laughs> Probably, yeah, not. <laughs> Probably not. Probably <laughs> not. Uh, Um, And in terms of his mom and the way he felt about her and the loneliness and then the fact that uh, Wilma Anna um, stayed and took care of both her mm -hmm. parents. He has a kind of respect for that, I suspect. But also he didn't do it and he didn't want to do it.
0: No, he had a wife. Yeah, he had a wife.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you can't quite take his faucet's word for it all. But yet that's the experience. His mother just died. He's feeling a certain regret of that, of his behavior with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's visiting across the street and it's all kind of coming back at him and probably in a somewhat distorted way.
0: Yeah. And through the whole story, he sort of glances at his old house and thinks it's looking shabby and there's just like a TV or an aquarium on. And then we come to that last right. line and suddenly it's, this, it's a blaze and it's this welcoming vision all right. What do you think that that last line does to the story?
1: He's kind of thrilled by it, but at the same time, he doesn't say it's for him. He says it's for someone, you know. And there's, so there's a mixed thing in there. I feel, which I didn't feel when I first read it.
0: But you know, what's really interesting is that line changed um, between when it came out in the magazine and when it came out in the book. And it, so in the in the magazine, it was the porch light and front room lamps were lit up as if to welcome someone. And then in the book, it's the porch light and front room lamps were lit up as if to welcome a visitor. A visitor, it seemed clear to him, long expected and much beloved. Right. So at that point, does it become him? Is it his homecoming? Is it just that there's love in that house? Is it?
1: I don't know. It tilts it more a little bit that way, I think. Yeah. It tilts it more toward that it's for him yeah. uh, than it might have been the other way, where it's possible to think that his house has been taken over yeah. and his it's welcome for someone else or yeah. anybody, yeah. and it's not him. In fact, if he went to the door, they wouldn't know who he was. Um,
0: in that second version, it makes it seem as though his childhood is just sitting there waiting for yeah, him, in a sense. Right. Um, which do you prefer?
1: I actually think I like it. Before the change, more ambiguous. but I don't know, you know, because yeah. it's still not certain. Yeah, even in the new version. Yeah, but it certainly tilts it toward. Yeah. What do you think?
0: <laughs> I, I think it becomes much more about him, if if it's that way. Though he's still a visitor; he's not. Uh, it's not a homecoming right. in that right. sense. So it's hard to say. Also, yeah. his 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 name changes from Fawcett to yeah. Rentschler.
1: <laughs> I don't know what that's about. But. Yeah.
0: I mean, like like. A lot of Updike's work, it is very directly autobiographical. You know, he had a—he lived with his grandparents, and the grandfather actually built a chicken coop with asbestos shingles, and the grandmother had a stump where she killed the chickens. Um, so, a lot of it is, I think, maybe so vivid because it was real, and it's vivid in his memory. But I also, bizarrely, found a, a blog online, <laughs> written by someone who had gone to fix the retaining wall for a notary public who lived across the street from Updike's childhood house and who said he had come and had her sign some papers <laughs> for him. So even even this visit to the notary public across the street from his old house was something that happened in life, huh. though perhaps not freighted with
1: all of the other things. Right. Who probably was, <laughs> or something. It
0: was something that he used, you know, yeah. in his fiction. Wait,
1: That's interesting. I had no idea.
0: But that. in that situation, why, if so much is is drawing on your life, why do you think you would choose to write it as fiction?
1: I don't know. In his case, because he also wrote some pretty vivid memoir yeah. stuff. So why he would choose, I don't really know. I can't quite because he, you know, some people don't write memoirs. Yeah. Maybe there's large sections of it. That aren't, that aren't memoir, yeah. you know. There's, just, there's more freedom and more, if you're not remembering exactly, and then right. you write fiction.
0: And you can put meaning where there was, yeah. might not have been any. Right.
1: I don't know, in his case. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, you, you also have, in your recent story in the magazine, also harvested some factual elements from your own childhood. And that you wrote as fiction and fictionalized and turned it into something else. So is there a, a way in which you're kind of haunted by details from the past that you want to find a way to use?
1: It's certain things you remember. You feel like, well, that ought to be known. <laughs> or, <laughs> or you know, uh, certain things, there's certain people in that story that versions of people, uh, you know, that stuck with me a long time. and But... I don't. I don't know if I'd ever write a memoir. Uh, <laughs> well, I, then uh, you have to put these things in to stories to and novels and plays. Uh, I, I said to somebody once that I thought memoirs were fiction with real names, but that's kind of how I feel. That uh, I mean, who can really remember all that? You know, you can remember a lot, but do you remember precisely? Maybe Updike could, but you know, I think uh, it's really hard to be sure. It doesn't. I don't have a strong appeal. Memoir. Mm-hmm.
0: But well, then for you, there is an appeal in writing fiction.
1: Yeah. I, I, I mean, I feel like uh, it's more honest, in my opinion, <laughs> <laughs> to, to just go and say, you know, even if you are to cross over some areas that someone else might say, well, that did happen or so and so. But in general, I think uh, there's a truthfulness to it, to fiction, frankly, um, mm-hmm. if you admit it if you don't claim it's (laughs) true.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thank you. John Updike was the author of more than 20 novels and a dozen story collections. He won two Pulitzer Prizes, two National Book Awards, and the National Medal of Arts, among many others. Updike published his first story in The New Yorker in 1954 when he was 22, and went on to publish more than 160 more, before he died in 2009 at age 76. David Rabe, a fiction writer, playwright, and screenwriter, is the author of more than a dozen plays, including the Tony Award-winning Sticks and Bones, In the Boom Boom Room, and Hurley Burley. He received the Penn Laura Pell's Theatre Award as a Master American Dramatist in 2014. His novels include Recital of the Dog and Girl by the Road at Night. You can download more than 150 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcasts section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.